Let's pray. Father, our confidence just in this moment is in your word. It's the living word of God. It's active and it's able. And we gladly sit under your word in this moment. We gladly open our hearts to your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would uh, help me preach faithfully. I pray you'd help all of us listen diligently. And we pray that you would encourage, uh, exhort, correct, realign us. We pray you'd do us much good through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So at our 2016 Africa Advance uh, Leaders Gathering, which this is, this theme of confidence is going to run throughout. And the first one, first message here from uh, James chapter 4 is entitled, Correctly Placed Confidence, Humble Yourself Before the Lord. And uh, we're going to read verse 6 through 17, but... We're going to look at it in three chunks, each that look at this, this combo of pride and humility from a different angle. So I'm going to read, preach, read, preach, read, preach. And the first section, verse 6 to 11, I'm calling a pattern to help promote humility. Okay, you there, verse 6. That's very rich. <laughs> But he gives more grace. I mean, how about that for five of the most encouraging words you can probably ever hear? He gives more grace. It tells you, tells me right up front that God's supply of grace is unending. He is completely sufficient for me. Uh, He is tirelessly committed to you. He gives more grace. We can never exhaust his supply of generosity to us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay, let's pause there. Did you observe the sandwich? So it's topped and tailed. By direct instruction to resist pride and promote humility. Now, pride is massive. I think it was um, John uh, Bunyan who said, pride is the last sin to die. Pride is illogical, is it not? How is it that we are so prone to be proud when we've got so little to be proud about, if anything. Yet there we are. Propensity towards pride. It's illogical. It's persistent. If you repel it, it returns. If you conquer it, it comes back. 
It's pervasive. Spurgeon said it's like the flies of Egypt. It doesn't go without the gracious wind of God. We can't get rid of pride ourselves. It's illogical. It's persistent. It's pervasive. Because of its persistency and its pervasiveness, we need a sustainable pattern to keep pride at bay and humility in play. We need a sustainable pattern of living that will help us keep our confidence in the correct place. And a sustainable pattern is exactly what James gives us here in these middle verses, 7, 8, 9. So the first aspect of the sustainable pattern, this pride-restricting pattern, this humility-promoting pattern, is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's about active allegiance. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Active allegiance. Now, submit doesn't quite do justice to the word that it was translated from. Submit is a bit passive. The word it comes from is, it's it's an aggressive word, um, meaning enlistment, active enlistment. Submit yourselves to God is better stated, actively enlist with God. Not passive, it's active. It's sign up. Tell yourself, remind yourself, I've joined God's army. I'm now fighting under this banner. I put my hand to his plow. It's, it's not appropriate. Don't look back. I've actively enlisted. I'm staking my whole existence on Jesus Christ. This is what we mean by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything I've I've got ahead of me in my life, I've staked on him. My my whole eternity, I've staked on him. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. You might say that's, that's rousing. I think it's more than rousing, it's pride defeating because it's saying, enlisting with God, it's the ultimate act of humility actually. It's saying the course of my life from here on is lining up with the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. Making courageous decisions Uh, obedient decisions about the course of our lives, about who we enlist with and whose banner we fight under, I think is close to the essence of humility. I think you learn an awful lot from a person about what they say yes to and what they say no to. And if you're familiar with the book of James, you'll know that he's he's so wonderful. I cannot wait to meet James. And all glory to God for working through him. But he's very practical So he doesn't just say things like, be humble, not proud. Once once he says it, he then then gets right in and he helps us see areas uh, or, or patterns of living that up until this point we thought were just normal. He presses and picks because he wants to see if there's actually some underlying pride in the way that we're living. 
And there may not be. The chances are we are, but we may not be. And when he says actively enlist for God, he's saying every decision to be made is one that needs to reflect, I'm not God. Because any of us, if we say a partial yes to God, that's pride. It's not you just not being in the mood, it's revolt. It's rebellion against God. And life doesn't become easier, but it does become simpler when we just get clear, I'm here for you. If I die tomorrow, that, that's, well, to live as Christ, to die is, is gain. It takes the sting out of fear of death. It takes the sting out of the future. Just to settle that the future is one that we're going to live in complete sacrificial obedience. The privilege we have of being obedient to Jesus Christ, that, that getting that clear is a wonderful thing. So we're relocating to the U.S. to plant and strengthen churches. We trust in the middle of the year. All the books say, don't move your kids when they're teenagers. And we've got three teenage boys. That's common knowledge. You just hear it again and again. Christians say, yeah, try not to move your kids when they're teenagers. Why are you moving your kids when they're teenagers? It's very simple because Jesus is Lord and we feel him telling us to go. How will they do? I don't know, but that's not the right question. The question is, is Jesus Lord? It's, life is so confusing when we don't have that as our primary question. When we're actually confused about whose army we've enlisted in. Am I in my army? Or maybe it's myself and Ash. It's our army. No, first and foremost, I'm not married. First and foremost, I'm not her husband. Jesus is her husband. Jesus is my husband. If you want to put any marriage first, it's that marriage. Clarity on enlistment is so important. Uh, one of the elders at... Um, Covenant Life, where we're going, is called Bo. And he's a man in his 50s, and he's, he's a man's man in every sense of the word. And I just ran a question by him recently by email. I said, Bo, any ideas of a good answer for people who say to me, um, PJ, with some of the difficulties that that church has had over recent years, why are you taking on the leadership? Bo's very clever, very good at communications, handling press. So I asked him this question. How do I answer when people say, why are you taking over this church uh, that's had these sorts of difficulties? You know what his answer was? Uh, Tell him God's called you. Love Bo. And it wasn't that I wasn't thinking that that's a good answer, but I thought, you know what? That's it. That's the answer to every question. God's called you. God said. That that answers. Remember, Remember when you said to me, we were wondering about all these things, and you said, you know, there's really one question that answers all the other questions. What's the will of God? And there's a gamble involved with enlisting, enlisting in God's army, and we just need to be men and women who are comfortable with gambling our lives for Christ, as Jim Elliot said. 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan says to the armor bearer, let's go up and fight the Philistines. Let's go up to Nairobi and plant a church. Perhaps the Lord will fight for us. I think perhaps is in the humble man's dictionary. 
Esther, maybe. The famous maybe from Esther. Are you okay with maybe? Or are you okay with perhaps? Or are you too proud? Because it is an issue of pride. Because if you feel God's saying that, yeah, although you can't see exactly how he's going to do it, and it may all end in tears. But the question isn't, where's the guarantee that what you're doing will end well? That's not the question. It's just another question that is not the question. If it doesn't work out, as we thought, that still doesn't alter the issue that we feel God has told us what to do. They feel God has told them to move to Nairobi. We don't know how the Nairobi church is going to go. I mean, we hope. Perhaps, maybe. And in faith, we're, we're totally for it. But our excitement around Nairobi isn't around, you know, what it's going to be. That's secondary excitement. The primary excitement around is we've got brothers and sisters who've clearly enlisted and are up for listening to General Jesus. Andrew Haslam, I had the privilege, we're hearing him after lunch, I had the privilege of listening to him uh, go full tilt on Sunday night to 3CI Church in Pretoria. And at one point, he was calling out courage from men and women. And he quoted the, the 16, uh, 16th century martyrs, Latimer and Ridley, who were burnt uh, in, in England for their faith, and how Latimer, I think, as the flames were licking up around their ankles, being burned as heretics, Latimer said, play the man, Master Ridley. For today, a candle will be lit in England that by God's grace will never go out. So play the man, Master Ridley. This is a man, two men. But Latimer had just got clear. What's happening here is not a failure. And play the man is, it's a colloquialism for act like Jesus. It's a colloquialism for there is a son of man who was crucified, who gave his life. Therefore, for us, the servants of the master, to do similar, that's normal. That's natural. It's not this freak occurrence. And Andrew also mentioned, uh, I think, Augustine, who said, uh, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, that's not just those guys who get martyred back then or even in our era, that's us. There is no, there's no harvest in the kingdom of God without daily bleeding. And when we're clear that we've enlisted in God's army, you know what, what soldiers are like? It's, it's remarkable. It often comes across very well in, in movies that they've just settled, live or die, I'm a soldier. I'd prefer to live, but if I die, I die. When James here says, submit to God, he's saying, actively enlist and get clear that we live 100% for Jesus. And this is why you'll notice in our partnership that we commend one another to a point, but we stop short of gushing. So like Sheshantrudes moving to Dar es Salaam, they've moved from a very comfortable city and environment to a much less comfortable city and environment. As Stephen was saying, they've, 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 they're, they're daily martyrs for Jesus. And we commend them and we encourage them. But not to the point where we want to say this is an exception. And this is what we do. 
Friends, this is the right way our master has set things in place. Come follow me. Take up your cross. Die daily and follow me. And life gets simple. Now, you say you've taken a long... Yeah, it's... We fight pride by getting clear on whose army we're in. Submit to God. Resist the devil. If submit was... uh, uh, a little bit too soft, this word uh, resist um, has, has something to learn from it as well. Uh, the word resist, it's got a military connotation to it. Manning the defenses is what would have come to mind with those who were reading it. So we've got active allegiance, now we've got active defense, man the defenses. It doesn't matter how enlisted you are in God's army, you will not be spared repeated onslaughts of the enemy. It's going to happen till we're, we're home in glory, till we cross the Jordan. It's going to happen. Now, we've been married 22 years. Uh, 20 years ago-ish, two years into marriage, um, Ash and I were both very aware that there was a, a weakness in me that would often spill over into sin. And it's a proneness. It was, it still is. I'm fighting. Uh, The onslaughts still come. It's a proneness to anger that is often inappropriate. But early in our marriage, you know how marriage works to refine you. And then your your first kid comes along and there's even more refining that goes. This this was, you know, much on our radar. So uh, we went to Uncle Chris. He's He's a believer, Chris and Debbie. And we heard that my Uncle Chris, who's a Smythe, uh, was in Chris and Debbie were in the deliverance ministry. Uh, sorry, Chris and Jane, their daughter's Debbie, my cousin. Uh, Chris and Jane were in the del- deliverance ministry. So we thought, yes. So we went to visit them down in the Brighton area, uh, sat down and said, listen, good to see you, but we've, we've come about this. I find myself prone to anger. And Ash says, yes, he finds himself prone to, to outbursts of rage. Um, and Chris said, oh, that's interesting. Every Smythe male seems to struggle with that. So I don't know. Was it, you know, we're born into a fallen world. Was that just the weakness that, you know, some, some kids are born without hands. Was that just a bit of a weakness there, the fallen world? Whatever. All Smythe males struggle with that. And so I said, well, that's good, to, you know, helpful to know that I'm not alone in this. Could you pray for me? I know that you're into the deliverance ministry. Here's my head. One, two, three, Go. And he said, Uncle Chris said, oh, it doesn't actually work like that. He said, I'll gladly pray for you. I'll pray that you learn to draw on God's grace, that you might be able to resist the repeated onslaughts of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's what he prayed for. And a wonderful thing to report is that it works. Uh, resisting the uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in the power of God, actually works. We can do it. I think on Easter Day, I'm preaching on Romans 6. Not sure yet. But if you're wondering what to preach on on Romans 6, it's a good bet. Uh, to preach on Easter Day, it's a good bet. It's slightly complex. And you, you, you're going to need to be careful if you go that route on Easter Day, because... There'll be a lot of unbelievers in in your churches and so on. But what is brilliant about it is 
is Paul says, we have died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. You know, like if you want an expression for something really thorough, you say dead and buried. I mean, dead's enough, but buried as well. We've died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've raised with Christ. And the punchline is so that we are now dead to sin and alive in God. And it's an amazing passage. He talks about accounting yourself, count yourself dead to sin and alive in God. He deals with our identity. He, if you're an accountant, you've got two columns, a column for that and a column for that. He says, count yourself in the righteous column, not in the unrighteous column. Uh, some of you would have heard uh, Ben, who led us in worship, uh, do a teaching when you've got two columns. And on one side, you've got the characteristics of Jesus as a shepherd. On the other side, you've got the characteristics of me as a shepherd. This is terrible. This is wonderful. And the question is, how do, we, how do we live like this? And the first answer is that we actually are now in Christ. My identity is actually what was my old self, my current, that the aspects of me that are not yet regenerate I'm, are in this column. I'm actually in this column as a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, it doesn't mean I don't still need to fight the old. And Ben taught us communion with Jesus, abiding in him, is how, is how we increasingly live like Jesus. But the glorious truth is my identity is in Christ. I'm found in Christ. And I now have the ability. I didn't before I met Jesus. But I now have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. And it's deadly if we think of our identity as Christians, as Christmas trees... Before we met Jesus, we're just a Christmas tree. Pathetic, pointy, sharp, ugh, little leaves. Prickly. Not much to look at. It's just green. Boring. But then we meet Jesus. And the day I met Jesus, some lights were put on top of me and around me. And now I'm a Christian. Can't you see? You're dead in the water. Our identity isn't old creations made a little bit shiny on the outside. Our identity is absolutely brand new creations on the inside. So if you're an, uh, there's an onion, if you think, you know, the, the, the more you get towards your core, the more rotten you get. Oh, if you knew the real me, it's completely the opposite when we're in Christ. We're no longer inherently sinful often doing righteous things, we're now inherently righteous, sometimes doing sinful things. The power's broken, but if you start with, I haven't, I'm not really changed, you'll never get beyond that. This glorious truth that we can resist the devil, we can resist sin, confident that it'll actually work. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, part number three of this amazing pattern for living is draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Active fellowship with God. This is a command, draw near to God. Want to stay humble? Draw near to God. Want to stay humble? Resist the devil. Submit to God. So it's a command, draw near to God with the command as a promise, he will draw near to you. 
And note the order. Does it say, when God feels particularly close, draw near to him? It's the question. Does it say, when God feels particularly close, draw near to him? And it's the other way around. Now, we know from the sweep of scripture that God is the first mover on everything. There isn't any desire in me to draw close to God that isn't ultimately from him and prompted by him. Yet, James feels confidence say, to say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Personal times with God, draw near. Corporate times like this. Why are you in the room? It's often a question, isn't it? Why are we in the room? The answer that each one of us have, would have, I know, is we want to draw near to God. If you come to find out about advance... Not a great reason for coming. Oh, it's good as a secondary or tertiary reason, but we're gathering together to draw near to Jesus. We must believe, John 15, there is no fruit outside of abiding in Jesus. That's why we start with worship. That's why God spoke to us prophetically in different ways, just at the outset. Even the the Father prophetically saying, Behold my son, draw near to God, lean in. Dependence on God. My fondest memory of my cancer era was complete brokenness in in terms of who I was and absolute dependency on God and desperation from God. So, so what what one of the privileges of of knowing you're going to die soon or thinking you're going to die soon perception's reality in that moment, is that everything's stripped away. You don't have any future dreams on earth. You don't have any hope for your wife and kids outside of Jesus. You're absolutely alone without any props except uh, the God of all comfort, who comforts so extraordinarily when we're in, in seasons of suffering. That's my fondest memory. Of it. I, I remember praying, Lord, I never want to leave this place. I remember on my study floor, crying and crying and crying. You know, Ash has got her own wonderful stories. But I, Lord, I never want to leave this place of dependency on you. And I think since cancer, I'm more dependent on God. But you know the thing about pride? You repel it, it returns. This thing needs to be fought tooth and nail every day, every week, every month, every year. Dependency on God. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Pattern for living. To keep pride in check, promote humility, is active purity. Now this one goes right to the core of us. You know, when James says, pride and humility, pride and humility, then he packs it. We know James well enough from the rest of his book to say, Just pause on each phrase here. And this one about active purity. Obviously, there's much in this statement for those who are not yet believers. There's much for us who are believers. In fact, I wonder if there's more for us who are believers. Because is it not appropriate that us who have tasted and seen, is it not appropriate that we are mortified about our sin in a way that an unbeliever isn't? Because we've tasted and seen. 
And he's very economical. In one short verse, he fits in hands, heart, and head. This is James at his most concise. How's, how are your hands? How's your heart? How's your mind? Just in the last um, few months, um, I know of two, I know one well, the other I know of by reputation. He's a movement leader in the UK. Um, This man uh, committed adultery with his secretary, a movement leader in his 60s, not part of the New Frontiers, the wider New Frontiers family. Incredibly well respected, incredibly well known. He headed up New Wine, I think. Yep, New Wine. And he's now stepped down from leading his church, down from the movement, trauma in his family, obviously. This is a guy you thought, no. The height of his spiritual powers in his 60s. And then uh, a friend of mine, another church leader in another continent, um, had a gambling problem for most of his adult life, actually, about 25 years. And he managed to keep it absolutely hidden from his wife and his children and all of us as brothers. And it came out um, just, just towards the end of last year. And he's now no longer leading the church and the region of churches that he led. And he's leaning into Jesus. Why do we mention this? And obviously, you know, you'll steward this information wisely. But I mention it because humble people keep an eye says James, on purity issues in their lives. And it's pride just to live on in rebellion. Yeah, I'm a leader, and it's even more proud if you keep it secret. And to let it build and build and build and build. There's an immense amount of pride in that. Just this, James is saying, if you gloss over your sin, it, it's probably a sign of, of pride. Oliver Cromwell, uh, he went to the circus and he saw, uh, on the first night he went, he saw a snake charmer uh, stand and this python that he had tra- tra- trained from <laughs> yay thin was now a mature python and the trick, the circus trick was uh, the python wraps himself around him, and he's completely hidden. And then he unwraps, and everyone claps. The snake back in the box. Um, he went along three nights. The first night, great. Second night, great. The third night, the crowd gasped in horror as the python forgot the trick and contracted and squeezed the life out of the man. He, he died. Moral of the story is little snakes become big snakes and big snakes snakes kill people. And brothers and sisters, out of this scripture, but also out of these sobering stories I've just told, it's imperative that we are humble enough to go after sins whilst they're small because they will escalate. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. And the stakes are higher for those of us in leadership because the devil would like nothing more than just to 
keep things low-key. Oh, it's not really serious. You can handle it on your own. That's a proud person's line, by the way. I can handle this on my own. I don't need to tell my wife. I don't need to tell my fellow elders. I keep this on my Proud, says James. Goes right to the core. Jesus said, if, if your hand causes you to sin, put it in your pocket, right? What did he say? Are we humble enough to do that? Because cutting it off probably means talking to our elders about it. Lack of transparency, lack of vulnerability, particularly with the things we struggle with. James is saying it's probably pride. Some of our best elders meetings over the years has been when one of us has showed up and says, hey guys, just before we get into stuff, can I confess my sin to you? James is a fan of that, isn't he? Confess your sins to one another. Some of the sweetest and best and most fruitful moments we've ever had that I've been in over the years. I've been an elder for approaching two decades now. It's been those sorts of meetings. Sometimes it's been me. Sometimes it's been other brothers. Some of you have been in those meetings. In fact, lots of <laughs> Lots of you, you're thinking, yeah, those were great. Then he says, be wretched, mourn and weep. He doesn't let us go. (laughs) Active repentance. This doesn't mean all the time. We don't want to be walking around mourning and weeping all the time and being wretched. But seriously, when was the last time you uh, mourned and wept over your sin? When was the last time? It is appropriate. For us to love Jesus and to hate sin and to mourn over our sin. But can I say this as a very important facet of this? It's vital that as we become appropriately aware of our sin, which is the focus of these couple of verses, we must not get sucked in to a state that isn't sufficiently aware of the grace of God. I've seen this. It leads to a toxic, gloomy, intense, self-absorbed expression of Christianity. Very important. Whenever we're talking about sin, corporately or by ourselves and dealing it with God, that we are more aware of God's grace and his forgiveness than we are of our sin. And, and, and the devil is so subtle that false humility creeps in. And I've seen it in portions of the church. I'm sure you have as well. Where the more you talk about sin and self, it's, the, it's got the guise, the appearance of humility, but it's actually the epitome of pride. It's gone from something quite healthy. When Jesus isn't involved in anything, it goes toxic. And when we're, we're weeping and mourning and aware of our sin and taking action and cutting it off and, and talking to our brothers and sisters about it, still within that, the, the atmosphere must be a loathing of sin, but an absolute delight in the glory of God. Humility is not found in talking about your own failings. Humility is found being conscious and aware of that, but talking mostly about Jesus' non-failings. And how we're found in that. Don't slip in to an intense, self-absorbed kind of humility and, and sin awareness. True humility is boasting in God's grace. 
That's the first section. Section two and three, we're going to look at differently. We're just going to look at sort of snapshots there because it is a package deal that goes together. That's the pattern for living. Look at uh, this next section where um, he hones in on how judging other people can be a prideful endeavor. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So having now given a pattern of humble living, he just goes for one area in these verses saying, hey guys, you may not ever have thought of it like this, but how we speak of others could indicate either pride or humility. So he speaks of defamation, that's speaking evil. If I defame uh, Ross Rogers, I will break a confidence, that's defamation. I haven't said anything untrue, I've just said it in a place that I shouldn't. So I can defame Ross Rogers by saying, breaking a confidence. Um, I can defame Ross Rogers by uh, saying that he said something he didn't. I can defame Ross Rogers uh, by misrepresenting what he said or how he said it. There's a whole number of ways that I can defame Ross Rogers. Now, James doesn't give examples, but I will. Um, Example number one of defamation Vaughn, my friend Vaughn here, he tells me something about his marriage. And purely for prayer purposes, I share it with a group who I shouldn't share it with. Um, here's another one. My son Jack. And let's stick with elders because we're mostly uh, elders here. Um, Glenn, who's our lead elder. He uh, says to us in an elders meeting, Brothers, listen, our Saturday retreat in three weeks' time as elders, I just want to call you all to be there. Uh, please, can we all make it? And he, then he sends out a message saying, brothers, I want to warmly uh, encourage you. In fact, I want to call you. Please, can we all, capital A-L-L, can we all make that elders retreat? This is a true story. This works. I would defame Glenn, which I don't do, but I would defame him if I said to Riggs, flip, Glenn's got the whip out on us on this one. It just misrepresents I'm, I'm, I'm so insecure that I would say something like that to Rigby, so Rigby would feel some sympathy for me. What I've actually done is tried to push Glenn down to build myself up in some insecure way. I'm trying to make him think that, you know, maybe Glenn's not as good a leader as there are in other churches. And, and that, that would be misrepresenting how Glenn said what he said. It's defamation. Uh, final example, Vaughan... Uh, listens to me preach on a Sunday morning, and he gets me off the meeting, and he says, great job, thank you so much. Uh, or he says, thank you so much for, for the effort you put into tomorrow, this morning's preach. <laughs> you know what that's code for, right? I can't thank you for anything else. And, and Vaughan says, I think that the last section you need to tighten up. God bless you, brother. And I'm, ty- I'm insecure. It's not just tiredness. I'm insecure, and I walk down the stairs with Ash. And she says, well, how was your chat with Vaughan? And I said, He trashed my preach. He didn't trash my preach. As an insecure guy, I've misrepresented what he said to Ashley. That's that's the picture. Look Look at James's solution. Solution number one, he reminds me that I am equal to others. 
he uses the word brother and he uses the word neighbor. He's saying, as a brother, as a neighbor, you have no right to try and push Fawn down to promote yourself or push Glenn down to promote yourself. And later he'll go and say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So he reminds us that we're, we're brothers. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Protect, honor, do not defame other brothers. The next thing he says is against God's law. He says against someone else, you're a brother. Then he says against God's law, it's over you. And again, he really turns the knife here. He says, if you go around defaming people or being loose with your words, you're not submitting to God's word. Second good reason. Humble yourself under God's word. And then thirdly, he says, against God, remember that you're greatly below. He says, who's the judge? And there's only one answer. It's God. It's not you. Who are you? You're just a brother who's been shown grace from God. And then the final section. Probably the best known little section here, pride and presumption. Come now. Let's read it out loud together. Come now. Let's read it out loud together. James can be a pain in the neck. He goes for things that I say just glibly. We're going to plant a church in Nairobi next year. Uh, We're moving to the estates later in the year. Um, Next year, we're trusting that our church will grow by 25%. He takes those things and he just says, hang on a minute. Those phrases that sound fine, are they actually fine? And he's he's not saying they're always wrong. He says they can be rooted in pride. So look at, look, at, look at some of these phrases that you and I use. Today, tomorrow, a year. Such disregard, presumption about how long we're going to live. Uh, I will do this. I will do this. Presumption of the power of choice. We will trade and make a profit. Such presumption in our ability. How easily we overstate our ability. And look at his remedies. The final pride crushers in this section. He says, truth number one, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Anybody here know what tomorrow will bring? Now, it's, it's not that we don't plan for tomorrow and next year and next decade and make strategic plans, but they must be done in an atmosphere of humility. And as we make plans, great plans for what we believe God wants us to do in our short lives, that's good, do, do that, but meditate on our complete lack of knowledge about what the future holds, because that drives us to the one who does hold the future. And you might be thinking at this point, I'm nearly done, but you might be thinking, this isn't a biggie. James takes things that we don't think are big and says, let's check. Truth number two, he says, PJ, your life is like a mist. Now, if you blow a smoke ring, you say to your friend, look at it. By the time he's looked, it's gone. That's what our lives are like. Like a mist. I'm one blood clot away from not being with you this time next year. Now, I trust that I will be. I'm planning to be. But I don't meditate on that. I will be. I will be. I make that plan, but I just say, Father, 
if you spare me, I'll be there. You're one drunk driver away from not getting home to your church this weekend. Oh, no, we mustn't talk like that. No, James says, think about the fact that your life is amiss. Why? Because it makes us think about God who keeps us. And it means we can be very front-footed. No, we're doing this. We're planting there. We can do that. But it's on a foundation of profound humility, which is the last phrase, if the Lord wills. Rather say, if the Lord wills. Now, you don't need to say this as a talisman. I'll see you tomorrow, if the Lord wills. I'll be back here in this room tomorrow, if the Lord wills. No. Say it here. Oh, you can say it here. I, I, I like to say things, because it often helps this. I've got a friend called Ben Davis in the UK. The Barnes partner. He's, he's an old Welshman. And... Uh, all of the years that I've known him, he, he's, he's often said, if the Lord spares me. I'll, I'll come out and visit you if the Lord spares me. And every time I hear it, it just, it just creates humility in me. If the Lord wills, if, if the Lord spares me. By God's grace, these are precious phrases that we use. I don't mind if, if you don't use them as long as you use them. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's here. I don't want to, uh, Ben, thanks, you can come up and help us with that song. I don't want to, brothers and sisters, um, press in, in a way that's inappropriate or, or too much. Neither do I want to take James, what he says, and, you know, just contextualize it only for our partnership. But if you just permit me a couple of sentences here about our partnership. Advance is a, a front-footed name. I'm told that it's a South African kind of name. <laughs> and we believe that. We see that in Scripture. The advance of the gospel, Philippians 1. We're proud of that. There's quite a number of, of South Africans. Um, most, mostly here we're, we're South African. We have a, a weakness as a people group of depending on ourselves. Uh, we need to watch that. Uh, the English have a dependency to, to depend on themselves, as do the... In fact, humankind does. But when you put us lot together and we get excited about planting and strengthening and we take the Great Commission seriously, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, it has to create a go-getter atmosphere. It must do. And I don't want to dampen that one jot but I want to just say, PJ, submitting to the word of God and brothers and sisters submitting to the word of God. I want to just check that we're doing that and making plans on a base of humility.